and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon, and it is Thursday, March 26th. I am in the podcast bunker in New York City. It is who knows what day of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm just trying to take it one day at a time. And what a lot of people are doing is uh, what I did last time before the podcast on Wednesday was uh, recommend some stuff. So I want to recommend a 10-minute YouTube video I saw. It was by The Ringer, and it was in honor of the 15th anniversary of The Office uh, premiering, and it's in honor of the famous game between The Office workers and The Warehouse workers in season one. It is one of my favorite episodes of The Office. It is hysterical. It has so much going on, so many plot points, and then also it has this great basketball game and its iconic Steve Carell lines and jokes and the battle of Jim and Roy for Pam. Uh, I know during this quarantine period, a lot of people are binge-watching shows, and if you happen to be watching The Office, I recommend the basketball episode, and after watching that, uh, going on YouTube and finding this video, it's like a play-by-play, in-depth breakdown of the game. Uh, it's obviously, you know, a bit satire. It's primarily comedy, but I found that really enjoyable. Uh, and I'm still working through Grit. I want to get that done, hopefully by next week, so I have a new book to recommend uh, for everyone. So, to the podcast. So, today I am joined by the head men's basketball coach at Hobart College, Coach Stefan Thompson. I don't want to give too much away, but I really enjoy the interview, uh, and... I had a great time talking to Coach Thompson. Uh, he's a great guy. And he's definitely going places, and uh, he's taking this Hobart program to a lot of great places as well. So I uh, don't want to spoil too much, so I'm going to hit the music, and when I come back, I'll be joined by Coach Stefan Thompson from Hobart College. Joining me today on the Double Double is the head men's basketball coach at Hobart College, Stefan Thompson. As a player at Hobart, Coach Thompson won the 2012-2013 Conference Player of the Year and was the first player in school history to make the NABC All-American team. He finished his playing career as fourth on the all-time scoring list at Hobart and the only player in program history with over 1,000 points and 400 assists while helping to lead the Statesmen to an 82-31 and record. After graduating, he was an assistant coach at Wilkes University for three seasons before returning to his alma mater as an assistant in 2017. After two seasons as an assistant, Coach Thompson was named the 20th head coach at Hobart in the summer of 2019 and led the Statesman to the Sweet 16 in his first year at the helm. I am thrilled that he is taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? Everything's going great, Dave. You know, I'm just trying to make the most of uh, the circumstances we're all in right now, but uh, staying positive and staying productive. Yeah, that's that's the goal for everyone. And as we were talking before, we're, we're kind of all in this together. So uh, it's a unifying feeling that you're not alone. But I want to go back to the beginning for a second. So you grew up in the Syracuse area, and I saw in an interview that you were a ball boy at uh, the home games for Syracuse University. Is that kind of how you fell in love with the game of basketball? Well, I've been in love with the game of basketball, man, since I can recall two or three years old. You know, I always had a ball in my hand. 
and uh, basketball is one of those sports is uh, easy to play. You know, you get a hoop on you know your your kitchen door, a little Nerf hoop, or you go outside in your backyard. And it's been one of those things that I've always played, and that love for the game gave me opportunities, Dave, to then be in ball boy at Syracuse. Um, kind of how that came to fruition was uh, my grandfather surprised me with uh, a summer trip to the Jim Beheim basketball camp. And I was able to go there, and it was one of the best experiences of my life. You know, it was first time in the Carrier Dome, and, you know, being able to play ball there for basically 16, 18 hours a day was yeah. just a thrill. And I met one of my mentors there, um, and that guy connected me with uh, the people at Syracuse to try to be a ball boy. So that's kind of how all that stuff came together. And you know, obviously being in the Carrier Dome and, and that environment and, you know, seeing some great coaches on the sideline and great players, that even fostered that love for basketball deeper. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And uh, so you're so you grew up in, in upstate New York. What was your recruiting process like in high school and how did you go about choosing Hobart? Uh, well, in, in high school, man, I was five. Well, I'm still in five, nine. <laughs> Back then, I was about 130 pounds soaking wet. And Hobart was actually the first school to reach out to me. I remember I got a letter in the mail from them. And it just kind of gave me a little pamphlet about the school with some information. And the first thing that stood out was Seneca Lake. You know, Hobart sat on a beautiful area in the Finger Lakes. And uh, to find out it was like a really close school to my home was was really intriguing. Uh, But my focus at that time, like most high school players, is to try to get a scholarship. Um, I came from a single mother household, so trying to make college affordable was my goal for myself. Um, but as my senior year kind of started to unfold, I realized that, you know what, like Division three is probably going to be the level I play at. So I got recruited by a number of Division three schools in upstate New York, um, you know, like St. John Fisher, Nazareth, Hamilton, uh, St. Lawrence. Um, so I had visited a good amount of those schools just to see what they were like. My end of my senior year, I had a big time game in our sectional championship. I had 40 points. Oh, wow. And we were able to win. And, and then a lot of schools, Dave, kind of came out of the woodworks <laughs> yeah. uh, and started recruiting me. Some at the higher level, Division II, uh, but none really bit and said, you know what, we want to offer you a scholarship. So, you know, my heart was with Hobart because they were genuine. I love the coaching staff, Izzy Metz, Duncan Paddock, you know, Coach Pisnick and Coach Wenzel. And uh, it was just a great academic fit for me. So that's kind of what made me decide that. Hobart was the place I wanted to further my education. And and they had guys that I was familiar with, a guy like Greg Stern, who went to Jamesville DeWitt High School, um, ended up being one of my best friends. But just to see that 315 connection was yeah. uh, that's why I pulled me in there. That's great. And so as you mentioned the academics, for the listeners who, who don't know, Hobart is a selective liberal arts college, as you mentioned, in upstate New York. And so what was it like for you trying to balance academics with basketball and do you share any tips with your players now? Well, in high school, I went to a Christian Brothers Academy, which is a really good academic school. So I had a kind of a platform to build off of and a foundation to carry over. Um, obviously, college is presented its own challenges with a lot more decision making. But yeah. my big thing was, you know, keeping constant communication with my professors, whether it was office hours or trying to meet them for lunch. That's one of the beauties of being at a small bar place like Hobart is you get to build some genuine relationships. So I try to be authentic with my professors and use them. Um 
And then also just being disciplined with my time in the library, you know, after practice every day, making sure I was going there for at least two to three hours to get my work done. And uh, also selecting some classes that I had genuine interest in. Uh, I think that's the beauty of a liberal arts curriculum is that they have kind of unique classes that you can find uh, your interest. So I tried to be smart about that. But now when, you know, I'm sharing these tips with my guys, Dave, it, it always comes down to like supporting them and, you know, whatever their academic right. interest is, whether it's econ, psych or the sciences. Um, and then we always stress to them about being proactive versus reactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want proactive communication with the professors and the coaching staff. Um, and we think that guys that are proactive with their schedule are the ones that have a greater chance of being successful. So we're just trying to build them you know, great habits and allow them to be aware of the resources that are available to them. And, you know, as a head coach, I genuinely mean this, but, you know, academics is 1A and basketball is 1B. And that's how that order has to be because a lot of these families are making sacrifices to send their kids to Hobart uh, with the goal of them graduating and then using that degree to kind of propel their life. So, you know, I try to use any tips I have for them just to give them a, a leg up on the competition. Yeah, for sure. The The proactive instead of reactive is great advice. I, from my own playing career, we've had some guys in my four years who might not have been as proactive. It definitely caused some, some headaches for, uh, for our coaching staff. But uh, your junior season – you guys make the NSA tournament before falling to eventual national champion in uh, Cabrini in round two. What was your NSA tournament experience like as a player? Uh, it was a great time, man. Uh, we played, obviously, at Cabrini, which we have a great amount of alums in that Philadelphia area. So to be able to see that Hobart Statesman crowd, be able to pack their gym was tremendous. Uh, the first round, we ended up matching up against Ohio Wesley in the and they had a really good point guard, Andy Winters. Uh, he's the head coach of Red Otterbein right now. And uh, it was just a game that was back and forth. Uh, I think we ended up pulling that game out by maybe four or so. So you kind of get that uh, deep breath to say, you know what, we won our first program NCAA tournament win. Yeah. But the way the D3 set up, man, it's a back-to-back game. So right. you almost got to put that behind you. And, you know, looking at Cabrini, they were ultra-talented. You know, guys like Corey Lemons, Aaron Walton-Moss, now, those guys were legit players, um, and to just be in their gym with their home fans, they had bleachers on all four sides, so it was, uh, as a competitor, that's the kind of environment you want to be in. Um, you know, unfortunately, we ended up losing by two in OT, but it's one of those things where I wish more people got to see Division Three games like that. For sure. Uh, just because I think the respect and appreciation for that level in the game uh, will go a long way in the fans, but you know, the NCAA experiments is, is something that, as a player, you remember forever. Yeah, for sure, and you come back the next year and have a fantastic senior season. You won the Liberty League Conference Player of the Year award, and you guys won the, the Liberty League on your way back to the NCAA tournament. After the season, you get named to the NABC Reese's All-Star Game. What was it like to play in a game in that type of setting with some of the best D3 seniors in the entire country? Well, first, I was surprised uh, to get the selection from the NABC. <laughs> You know, you lose your senior year, and you kind of think that's the last time you're ever wearing that uniform. And right. then to get the invite from the NEBC, you know, kind of gave me a little jolt to say, you know what, I get to pull my uniform on one more time. Uh, but the NABC did a tremendous job with that event. You know, they flew us down to Salem. And, you know, they put us in nice hotels, gave us great food. And the game was just awesome as well, just because you're playing against some of the best Division three players in the country. So to see the skill sets, the mentality that kind of all goes into making a great player was really unique. 
Um, the game itself was a lot of fun to play on the court where they actually had, you know, the national championship game and, and to see fans show up and for then the NABC to also stream it. That was really cool. Um, but one of my favorite parts, Dave, was actually the practice. Oh, wow. uh, leading up to the game just because you know you're competing playing with random units of guys and it's five on five sometimes three on three yeah but you got a real chance to see like who is about what and you know who is capable of uh performing just in a competitive environment but overall the experience was a, a lot of fun that's awesome so when did you know that or decide that you were going to pursue coaching basketball as a career post-graduation well in high school i had some really good coaches um even just throughout my life coaches have always had a big impact on me and I've gravitated towards you know that kind of profession um, but when I picked Hobart I knew that my number one goal was to obviously graduate but to then play professionally and if I couldn't play I then knew I wanted to coach um, so after I got done playing and I got done with the NABC stuff I got an opportunity to get some tryouts over in Italy and I had a short stint over there before I got a stress fracture in my foot um, and I came back home to Syracuse and was able to be an assistant on the JV and varsity staff at my high school and that really just kind of wet my palate for you know what like coaching is what I want to do um, and my mentor Izzy Metz got a job a few months later and gave me a call and said you know what I'll give you your first opportunity to get in college coaching so it happened really fast Dave mm-hmm. um, but it always kind of been on the back burner for me to say you know what like this is what I want to pursue. So you get a chance to go over to, to Italy what were some of the culture shocks for a kid from upstate New York going to go live in a different country? Well, first, it was my first time ever going abroad. So wow. that was just uh, a shock in itself. And I'm a sociology major, so I really love learning about cultures. Um, but I did have some culture shock when I first landed. And, you know, you see signs that you can't read. And you hear yeah. the languages you can't really pick up on. And, you know, a guy's just standing there with uh, a sign and says, Stefan, you're like, oh, like I'm nervous, man. Like, <laughs> I just hop in this guy's car. So, right, right. Uh, that was pretty cool. But uh, I think the big thing culturally was just to see – how much the people in Italy valued family time, um, right. the, you know, the, how they schedule the meals to can leave work and then go take the kids from school to all get together. Um, every weekend, at the city center was packed with people and it was just, you know, uh, a, a culture that you could tell was rich with a lot of history. Um, people forget how young of a country we are here in America. Yeah. Um, you know, I had eaten in restaurants in Italy that were older than our country. So it really put things in perspective of how long those people had been doing things their way. Uh, but it was cool for the basketball experience as well to see how the game's taught over there, how it's played, um, and the things they value and stress in terms of their coaching philosophies. So sadly, you, you had your injury and you come back to the States. What was the most difficult part transitioning from playing to, to coaching? I would say just shifting the way my brain worked. You know, I had saw the game from a player's perspective for you know 22 years of my life, and now I had to shift it and look at it from a, a coach's view. Um, and as a result, learning how to communicate differently. You know, usually you're on the court, and I'm a, I'm a point guard. So you know, Dave, say you're a big guy, and we're running ball screen. I'm like, hey, slip it! Like that's all you yeah. need to hear, and you know to go to the rim. Whereas, you know, as a coach, you got to be able to build those habits and, and communicate that stuff, and you you're not on the floor. So being able to command a timeout in the practice um, but it ultimately came down to being able to kind of shift the way I just saw the game and how my brain had uh, kind of viewed the game as well so you get the assistant coaching job at Wilkes University 
what was it like for you to be a young assistant at the D3 level? Because it, cause there are a lot of different responsibilities than, say, uh, being an assistant at the same age at a, at a D1 program. It was awesome, man. <laughs> I was definitely wet behind my ears and didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, but again, I mentioned I worked for Izzy Metz, who is a tremendous coach and my mentor. He's the one that recruited me to Hobart. So there was a, an established relationship there. And uh, he took me under his wing and taught me a lot about what it takes to build a good program, especially at the Division Three level. And uh, being in Wilkes-Barre, PA, it's kind of centrally located. So mm-hmm. you know, I was going to Spooky Nook, you know, Philly, New Jersey, New York City, and you're bumping into a lot of programs and coaches. And, and I was learning on the fly, um, but Izzy really allowed me to trust my instincts. And I had made a lot of mistakes. Um, one of my first times kind of living on my own. Um, I also was pursuing a master's degree. I also had a side duty of being the director of intramural. So there was a lot on my plate um, yeah. that I was trying to juggle and perform and excel. Um, I found basketball to actually be the outlet, you know, being right. in practice and watching film. That was the fun part of the job. So uh, it was definitely an experience I'm going to remember for a while. But that's what makes Division Three special. Uh, we all have to take on different responsibilities just to make our institutions thrive and make our programs thrive right right so what so it sounds like you had a great experience at wilkes university so what inspired you to come back to hope to hobart as an assistant in 2017 well at that point i had been at wilkes for three years so i just kind of was like you know what I kind of need something new. I need to see how another place works or just to be around a different type of philosophy. And the head coach at the time, Tim uh, Tim Sweeney gave me a call and said that there'd be an opening and he wanted to interview me. So I, you know, gladly accepted it. We did a phone interview and then I also came back to campus for an interview. And that's when it like started to feel kind of special just to see like those familiar faces, you know, brought back the memories of why I loved Hobart. Um, And then deep down, Dave, I knew I wanted to have a chance of being the head coach at my alma mater. Uh Um, So by being an assistant there, I knew it increased my chances of that happening. Now, did I know it happened immediately? No. Uh, to keep it real, I thought I was going to have to you know, leave Hobart, go work somewhere else, maybe bounce around, and then have a chance again. Um, but when Tim Sweeney said, you know what, we, we want to hire you as our assistant, I, I had to jump all over the opportunity just because it made sense for you know, my immediate-term goals and my long-term goals. Yeah, for, for sure. And you guys were obviously very successful. Well, you were an assistant that in the summer of 2019, uh, you get promoted to head coach after Tim Sweeney takes the Connecticut College job in the NESCAC. So I played against Coach Sweeney, and he's doing a lot of good things with that program. They, they played a really good zone this year, and I'm excited to see what, what they do going forward. But you get promoted to head coach. You say you really want to do it. It was kind of you know, uh, like a dream of yours. So what was your first reaction when you found out that, that you actually got the head coaching job? It was pure excitement, man. Um, the interviewing process for a head coaching job, it's not easy. Uh, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. And even with me already had gone to Hobart and working there, I still needed to prove that I was the best person to lead the program. Yeah. Um, so I really held myself to a tough standard to you know, showcase why I deserved that job. Um, and you know, once I did get the job, my focus immediately shifted to our players and our alums. And really just trying to get them on board for what my vision is and then creating some dialogue, setting our standards and then talking with our staff. You know, I promoted everyone on our staff so we can keep that continuity. Um, but that pure excitement kind of just then blended itself to going out, recruit and getting on the road and, and really sharing my passion for Hobart with uh, as many people as possible. Yeah. So you, you mentioned your coaching staff and I noticed something very interesting while researching for this podcast. 
you have a you have a large staff, and in particular, you have three student assistant coaches: one manager for basketball operations, one manager for analytics, and one manager one manager for player development. How did they get involved with the program, and was it like to have that type of student involvement at such a small school like Hobart? Well, we had uh, our one of our managers, Carson. She's been managing the last four years in the program, so she's been pretty consistent with uh, her input and how she's been able to help us. So I wanted to keep her on board. Um, she does a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff for the operations end. Um, and then we had another guy named Mike who came to me expressing an interest in helping out. Uh, he has a really strong background in terms of finances. Okay. Uh, so I knew he'd be good with numbers. Um, yeah. And looking at the way analytics are driving kind of basketball culture right now, I thought that'd be a great position for him to you know, learn the game but also elevate us in terms of our efficiency and different ways of looking at things. Um, and the guy, Avi, he wanted to be a part of the team. We just didn't have a roster spot. Gotcha. So, you know, he decided to stay on board and, and be able to help out in practice with rebound and passing, you know, setting up whatever it took. Uh, but my main kind of focus on why I wanted to keep those guys and, and Carson around uh, was because I want our coaches to be able to coach. And right. I want them to be able to foster relations with our players and recruits. Um, sometimes at the Division three level, because we're wearing so many hats, you don't get to coach as much. Right. Um, and our managers allowed us to just have that level of efficiency. And they also presented some other voices uh, to our players to hear from as well. So I thought it made sense to, to add all those uh, people on board to our coaching staff. For sure. So as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, 2019-2020 was arguably the best season in Hobart history. You guys made the Sweet 16 and tied the program record for wins in a season. Obviously, being with this team as an assistant the last few years, you were very familiar with the guys in the program. Was there a moment in particular you remember where you realized that this was a special group? Uh, I thought we had showed glimpses throughout the preseason and even earlier in the year. Uh, we tipped off the season over at NYU, and uh, we were down by double digits and, and clawed our way back to a win which is really cool to see because we have a great amount of alumni support at NYC. And I thought we actually had more fans there at the game than NYU did. So it kind of felt like a road game, but kind of a home game. Yeah. And to see our guys rally around that support was cool. Um, and the next game of the year, we played Brockport. And again, we're down by a good amount, double digits, and clawed our way back. But we end up losing. Uh, but right there, I knew early in the year we had a really resilient group. And then, you know, we do countless team-building activities, trying to build the unity and, and really seeing guys – open up and let their guards down and coming together uh, was kind of a joy of mine. But I think if I had to point my finger on one particular moment, I would say it was during our alumni weekend. Yeah, uh, We had over 40 alums come back and, and to see our guys understand who they're representing, um, to also be where their feet are uh, and know that they're having a chance to play. I knew that our guys really knew what the program was about. Um, and I didn't know if that was going to transfer down the court, but I knew we had a special group of guys in the locker room. So, you know, I was willing to ride with them until the wheels came off. Yeah, for sure. So for the listeners who don't know, it is very rare for Division three winter college athletes to do a traditional study abroad program as the season overlaps both semesters. However, you had a player this year who studied abroad in Ireland in the fall, senior Sam Allen, who had at that point in his career coming into the season started 35 games. What was it like trying to reintegrate him into the team once he returned to campus? 
Well, for us in general at HWS, we're a top three study abroad school in the country. I want to say over like 60% of our student body goes abroad. So that's just a part of our campus culture. Like you mentioned, basketball does make it hard being a winter sport. Um, But Sam, he's truly a special guy. Uh, Very smart, uh, genuine person. So I knew he could handle being away for a semester um, because I knew his heart would always be with the program. And he did an unbelievable job of staying connected with the team. You know, he was watching film of our practices, watching our games. Uh, He was engaged in our team group chat. He had me type up our terminology. So he was still part of the team even while he was abroad. Yeah. Um, and then when he came back, man, it was almost like adding uh, a free agent in midseason. <laughs> uh, he gave us some extra juice. I thought he elevated our locker room, brought us closer together. And he's a senior, so he's yeah. been around the block multiple times, as you saw or you mentioned earlier. You know, he has started 35 games throughout his career. So uh, just to have that kind of veteran role um, complement all of the things we had already accomplished early in the year was great. Um, And because he is a special person, as I mentioned, he was able to build some great relationships with our young guys. I think that's one of the major concerns I have with the whole study abroad thing is, is that there's sometimes a gap between the younger guys and that person that is abroad where Sam was able to seamlessly kind of bring those relationships together. So that's a credit to him and uh, a credit to our school in general, just for promoting that and standing out in general for the study abroad programs. So you guys were a tenacious defensive team all season. Uh, you guys led the country in defensive field goal percentage, three-point field goal percentage defense, and were number one in rebounding margin. How did you go about laying that foundation to be a, a great defensive team? Simple word is, is repetition. <laughs> Just yeah. building habits over and over again that I knew would be effective, um, but also having those habits carry over to our guys and, and give them confidence so they knew that if they did them correct, that they would lead to success. Um, and that's my philosophy on it. But I think the real reason why we were able to kind of get that foundation was after our loss to Brockport, our guys had a players only meeting and they said they wanted to have a defensive identity uh, early in the year. We gave up some points and they're like, guys, like that's not what we want to be about. So um, having them embody that and then double down all of our principles is the reason I think we were able to have success. Um, and then we got to a point in the year where uh, we were able to see where we were ranking in the country yeah. and I thought that gave us extra motivation extra fuel um in every game you know we kind of had the mentality that we could lock teams up if we did what we needed to do and it also kept our bench engaged Dave right um, by seeing them cheering when you got to stop or a rebound I think most programs kind of get excited when you score um, yeah. but for us to have guys get excited when uh, you got a big time stop I thought it only increased those five guys on the court willing to work extra hard to do it so it was a great foundation to build off especially in our first year yeah so you guys don't force teams to beat you in a rock fight either offensively you guys move the ball extremely well and play as a as a true team a lot of people like to criticize the modern athlete claiming that they are selfish how do you go about creating your uh, team first culture I think it starts with just having high character guys in the locker room um, and really identifying that in the recruiting process um, and for me, I was fortunate because I was already assisting our staff. I knew the guys, so it was more about changing uh, their perception of me as a head coach. Uh-huh. Uh, 
but I thought, you know, for us to have that first team culture, we had great senior leadership. Um, our seniors knew they would only play for me for one year, so they wanted to lay a foundation that the rest of the program could build off of, and they wanted to be a unit. Um, and I really stressed to the guys all year, and it got to the point where they started to stress it, uh, but they knew we were more potent when all five guys were threats on the floor. Yeah. Um, and everyone actually supported each other in their role. And I thought, you know, when we had a chance to keep building on our pillars and leaning on those and building off of them, that's when I knew that, like, that team first culture was uh, actually more important than whether we were winning or losing um, and our guys really you know genuinely believe that way too yeah so Hobart earns an at-large or earned an at-large bid to this past year's NCAA tournament what did it mean to you to make it to the big dance as a first year head coach I had a lot of pride, man. I love Hobart. I love this place. Um, and I also was really, really excited just for our guys, but our seniors in particular, because they deserve this. Um, two years ago, we were in a similar boat where we kind of had lost in our conference playoffs, and we were hoping to get a at-large bid, and we didn't get it. Um, so that really stung them. Um, but then this year, to be able to get that at-large bid, I thought it re-energized our group. Um, it proved that what they had worked for uh, had come to fruition. Um, and, you know, I think as a first-year head coach, it's something that I'm trying to build off of. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, it comes down to our guys taking advantage of those opportunities, and it's nothing more special than playing the NCAA tournament. So, Coach Thompson, you, you have to tell us the truth. You guys drew St. Joseph's of Connecticut as your first-round matchup in the NCAA tournament, and they are currently coached by Jim Calhoun, the legendary Hall of Fame coach from UConn. What was it like for you to prepare for and then go up against the Hall of Fame coach in your very first NCAA tournament game? I'm going to be honest, Dave. Like I tried to ignore uh, the Thompson versus Calhoun matchup as much as possible. <laughs> you know, I made it about Hobart versus St. Joe's. Yeah. Um, uh, I know our guys uh, really were just excited to keep playing. You know, Hobart hadn't been to the NCAA tournament since 2014. So I tried to do my role in terms of getting us prepared, keeping my focus, blocking out the outside noise, just so they could do their jobs to the best of their abilities. Um, and we stuck to our normal routine, man. We scouted St. Joe's like we scouted every other team. Uh, we adjusted to, like, the media timeouts because it's kind of unique in the NCAA tournament. Um, but, you know, for a first game to start my coaching career in the NCAAs, it was definitely special and something that I probably will appreciate more as I go on my career. Um, but in the media time, and I was just trying to focus in on what Hobart needed to do to beat St. Joe's. Yeah, so obviously, Coach, there was a lot of other things going on in the world right as you were guys getting ready to take on St. Joseph's and doing your prep. Johns Hopkins had closed their site to fans, as did Amherst for their women's tournament games due to fears about the coronavirus. Was there any talk amongst the team or from the administration about playing your game without any fans? Our guys were definitely talking about it. You know, you, you can't avoid it on social media. Yeah. You hop on Twitter. I think that was the big talk so about, you know, Johns Hopkins and a couple other places blocking off the fans. So uh, our guys definitely did. But, you know, we tried to do a couple of little team gatherings in the hotel and, and just try to block out that noise as much as possible. Um, I don't think Springfield was anticipating blocking the fans from coming. So uh, it kind of helped us just try to keep our fans there, our family members that could attend. So we tried to block it out as much as we could. Yeah, for sure. So you guys go on to beat St. Joseph's in a fantastic game and you advance to play Springfield college in the next round in what ended up, which turned out to be one of the very best games of the entire tournament. 
as you mentioned a little bit earlier, and as I mentioned on a previous podcast with uh, Whitman head coach Eric Bridgeland, the Division Three tournament is not structured the same way as the Division One tournament. There are 16 pods of four teams where one school hosts the pod at their home gym, and Springfield was the host team in your pod. What was it like to play practically a true road game in the second round of the tournament? It was a lot of fun. Uh, as a competitor, like you want those environments. Um, like you mentioned, the Division Three tournament's a, a little bit different than the Division One or even Division Two sometimes. But uh, we really just embraced it where we were. You know, we were happy to be uh, having the chance to advance, um, and we knew that Springfield was a great team. Uh, they had a great fan support the night before, so we were like, "Hey, this place is going to be raucous. It's going to be packed." Um, but we had great Hobart fan support as well. Uh, but just the way the tor- tournament's kind of formatted, I think that's what ultimately makes Division Three special. And so, as, and so as you mentioned with the back-to-back Friday-Saturday, there's no day off in between to prep for your next opponent. Springfield was led by Jake Ross, a D3Hoops.com first-team All-American and a wing player who averaged 25 points a game this year, and Heath Post, who's like a hybrid forward and also a 1,000-point career scorer. What was your plan to slow down that dynamic duo with really only one full day of prep? Well, our program was used to the one-day prep uh, just because that's what we do in the Liberty League. We're used to Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday every week. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't a steep learning curve for our guys. Uh, It was more about shifting their attention to what Springfield did. And, you know, obviously you mentioned Ross and Post are great players. Uh, Scouting them, you could see that they accounted for 50% of their offense. Um, so just recognizing that, hey, we had to make their jobs and their nights as tough as possible. Uh, so we you know, kind of switched our matchups from here and there throughout the game. And we really tried to wear them out, uh, make sure they had to defend, box out, do all the little things that add yeah. up throughout a game. Um, but they're two high-level players uh, that made it tough to prepare for. I think they're one of the best dynamic duels in the country. Uh, obviously playing on their home court, they play, kind of fed off the juice of their crowd. Uh, but our guys really took on the challenge of saying, you know what? Like, we got to make it work, and we got to make their jobs tough. And we didn't do a great job, to be honest, man. Like, Ross came out on all cylinders, firing, yeah. making shots. Uh, but I thought our guy Dan Messino guarded him in the second half and was able to get some key stops that ultimately kind of fueled our offense as well. Um, and Post made some big-time plays for them, but uh, he also had to play some defense inside. So yeah. it was a collective effort, but our, our goal was to make them have to play 40 minutes and play both ends of the floor. So – you guys trailed by 13 points, 48-35, with about 14 and a half minutes to go in the game. The crowd is rocking, and you call a timeout. Do you remember what you said to your guys at that moment? Well, it started with uh, kind of our little quick coaches huddle uh, during the timeout, and you know, our, our assistant coach, Coach Peisnick, who's been around the block a couple of times, you know, he just said, hey, man, make sure you keep your tone right. Yeah. Uh, and that was the big thing. So I walked in the huddle, tried to keep my composure. And my biggest thing, man, was to give them confidence and let them know that what we were doing and our, and our style, the way we play, was going to prevail. They had made their run, and now it was our chance to make our run. Um, but we had to do it one possession at a time. And I just tried to give them extra belief. I think at those moments, sometimes some teams kind of – kind of stray away from what they do or what got them there. And I didn't want to do that. And I've heard coaches before have the regret in games of those situations where they say, man, we changed up everything instead yeah. of just sticking to what we do. So I tried to keep a good tone, keep my composure, and just pump our guys up so they knew that uh, we could chip away at that deficit. Right, and you guys did. Right after that timeout, you guys rallied to close the gap 
and immediately after that, it felt like that this game was going to come down to who had the ball last. You guys force the ball out of Jake Ross's hands, get a defensive rebound, and a great rim run and finish by the previous match at Sam Allen gives you the lead before a Springfield timeout. Springfield responds, though, as Heath Post hits a jumper. You know, I watched the game on Synergy. It kind of looked like it traveled to me, Coach. I'm not 100% certain. Uh, but with seven seconds to go, he hits that jumper to, to take a one-point lead. You call another timeout to set up your last possession. How did you keep your composure in that moment to call a great play to put you guys in the best spot to win? But we wanted to do what we practice. Um, you know, we, we do situations countless times throughout the year, and specifically with, you know, less than 10 seconds having to go coast to coast. We had probably practiced that day 15 to 20 times throughout the season. So, you know, I had to kind of reflect back on my experience as a player, uh, kind of give you a little time share here yeah. my junior year we played in the wendy's classic it used to be a tournament in upstate new york and i played for the legendary coach uh, mike near and we were in a similar situation i had to go full court there was 3.3 seconds to go we were down one and he came into the huddle so composed and i remember leaving that huddle knowing we were going to win the game so in that situation that we were in at Springfield, that was my ultimate goal, uh, to talk our guys through what we had already prepared to, to do and to give them the confidence that we were going to go win the game. I know after the huddle broke, I looked up at the scoreboard and saw that Springfield was in the penalty, so they weren't going to want to follow us. Right. So I kind of encouraged our guys to, hey, man, put your head down if you can, get to the rim and get a high percentage shot. Um, the worst case scenario, they follow us and we'll win the game at the free throw line. Uh, so that was kind of how I tried to approach that timeout, just to keep our guys uh, collectively in the same mentality that we need to do to go win. Yeah, and you know, you to- told your guys to be aggressive and get down the rim. Dan, Dan Messino takes it coast to coast, gets a layup, and uh, Tucker Lascaux gets the steal to to seal it. To see a senior make that type of play to to seal it and send you guys to the Sweet 16, a place you've never been before, what do you think that that just showed about your program? It's, I think it showed a lot about our program, but it even showed more about Tucker in terms of his growth. He didn't get caught celebrating. Yeah. He scored, and he immediately sprinted back. So did Sam Allen, and they got to the next play. Um, those guys have been doing those things all year. Um, but I think for our program in general, it showed us that uh, you know we got to play both sides of the ball, offensively and defensively, and be able to shift our attention as quickly as possible. And that scenario right there with the Damas, you know, layup and the Tucker steal kind of summarizes you know how we want to keep building things moving forward. And one of the things I loved, Coach, was you were extremely composed all weekend. And after Tucker gets that steal, throws up the air, you used to go crazy in front of your fans, <laughs> arms up. I, I thought it was awesome. So, uh, But obviously, the situation with the coronavirus was escalating every day. You're now preparing for the Sweet 16. Was that a normal practice week, or were there already some discussions starting in the Hobart community about uh, precautions for you guys or additional steps you guys might be taking? It was a normal practice week for us um, until we got down to Christopher Newport. So it was about 48 hours before our game. I want to say the news about Rudy Gobert having tested positive for COVID-19. That was kind of tough because then it's like, wow, it's, it's reached the NBA. And then the next day, the NBA postponed its season. Uh, the day before our game, a lot of the Division Ones had canceled their tournament. Yeah. And again, I mentioned that you know our guys were on social media, so they're like, "Are we next? Like, is yeah. our game going to get canceled?" So it was kind of one of those wait and see. You know, if we'd play kind of scenarios, I thought that was the hardest 
job I had to do all year was trying to maintain our focus and, uh, you know, kind of keep our attention to Christopher Newport and the tasks ahead of us. But there's definitely a lot of stuff swirling in the news and potentially that could get in our way of playing the game. Yeah, so in a day that I'm sure you and your players will always remember, as you mentioned, within 24 hours after the NBA suspended their suspended season after Rudy Gobert tested positive for COVID-19, uh, the NCAA announced they had canceled uh, all the remaining winter and spring championships, and suddenly your guys' season was over. Where were you and the team and when you found out the news that the tournament was canceled, and can you just share what the reaction was of the team? So we were at Christopher Newport uh, actually practicing. Oh, wow. Uh, in the NCAA tournament, they give you about 90 minutes on the floor the day yeah. before the game. So I think it was right around like the 50 to 45-minute mark left in practice. Uh, I could see our sports information director kind of call our assistant over uh, mid-practice, and our assistant hopped on the phone. And we were then going through Christopher Newport's baseline OB plays to try to get prepared for them. And, you know, my assistant, Sean Smiley, walks over to me and just says, hey, man, like our AD just called and said that our game's canceled you know, the whole oh, wow. tournament's canceled. So I tried to keep my composure and finish up that segment of practice, but I immediately huddled the guys right at uh, the center court circle and just kept it real with them. You know, I said, fellas, unfortunately, news has come down from above us that our season, our game's canceled. And I was like, you know, it's unfortunate. You know, we're not the only ones dealing with this. And um, it doesn't take away the feeling that we're all feeling right now. Um, but I'm going to tell you this. We got 45 minutes on the clock. Do you guys want to run fives? They're like, let's do it, coach. <laughs> uh, so we kind of broke the huddle, man. And we just got up and down and played. That's awesome. And it was probably our highest percentage uh, shooting effort of the year. <laughs> we're playing with freedom and sharing the ball was fun to watch there were so many smiles yeah um and we did a little bit of that elam ending with the target score oh that's awesome we just tried to make it as fun as possible but then you know we huddled up again and that's when the emotion kind of hit us to know that that was the last time this group would be together on the court uh, so I really tried to thank our seniors for everything they did for us. Um, and, you know, we had done something no Hobart basketball team had ever done. Right. And goes to the Sweet 16. So I really just tried to put that as perspective for them. But there was definitely some tears and hugs. And uh, it was tough to walk off the court, man. You wanted to be able to cherish those moments and stay on there as long as possible. Yeah, you you know, you, you mentioned your, se- your seniors. It's obviously a heartbreaking way for them to end their uh, Hobart basketball careers. On the bright side, though, they do get to end their collegiate careers on a win, and a great win, too. It's only been two weeks, but can you tell the world what your first team meant to you? Um, it's just pure love and joy. Um, those are a group of guys that I'll have relationships with and memories forever. Um, our seniors and I are actually the closest in age that I'll ever be to anyone. (laughs) So like those relationships, I honestly see them evolving from coach player to just friends. Um, I learned a lot from them. I learned a lot from, you know, everyone in our roster, Uh, but they made me proud. They also made our program proud. The best thing within the last two weeks was just to be able to see the amount of support we're getting from parents, alums, uh, people that even graduated in the sixties are sending emails and letters just to say how proudful they are of the program and to see the campus community embrace us. Uh, it really showed me that, you know, what we built our program on, which are pillars, uh, are capable of pushing us to levels we've never gone before, especially when we get a hundred percent buy-in and sacrifice. Um, but this first team is going to definitely be a memorable group and I'm going to lean on these guys in the future. Yeah. So your program 
tweeted out on on March 12th a picture of the stats earlier that I mentioned, you know, the the defensive field goal, the three-point defense, the rebounding margin, with the tagline, quote, the bar is set, end quote. What does that mean, and what are your goals going forward with this Hobart program? I think what that, you know, the bar is set is that we reached the Sweet 16. You know, no player ever that put on a Hobart uniform was able to do that before this year's team. Um, and I think our goals for moving forward, especially with me leading the program, is sustainability. Uh, how do we keep doing this year in and year out? I think that's the hardest part about any team culture, no matter whether you're in high school, college, or professional. Uh, some people catch lightning in a bottle, yeah. but I want to be able to sustain this and be a consistent top 20 program in the country. So that's what my goal is. I know our guys are on board with that. Um, and, you know, the next phase of that is going out there and attracting and recruiting guys who have that shared vision as we do. Well, Coach, from from just watching a few games on Synergy, getting, getting ready for this, you, you guys are definitely laying the foundation to do that. So uh, I'm definitely going to be checking you guys out going forward and, and pulling for you. So I got Appreciate that. So I got five rapid-fire questions to end the podcast. You ready? All right. All right. Here we go. Let's see how I do at this one. All right. So number one, favorite Syracuse basketball player ever? Uh, Carmelo Anthony. Um, That's a good one. He put Syracuse on the map, put the city of Syracuse on the map as well. So uh-huh. definitely Carmelo. As you mentioned, and as we've talked about, you're still a pretty young guy. Do you ever play with the team to show them that the coach still has it? No, I try not to. <laughs> my, my job is to coach, and I may shoot around on occasion, but uh-huh. I'm not playing with them, man. Those dudes are kicking my butt right now. I don't <laughs> want to take any more else. <laughs> so who was the best player you ever played against in college? Um, I would go John DeBarlameo at Rochester. He yep. was uh, Jocelyn's winner that year. Um, but just we had an upstate New York trio of point guards with uh, Rossi at Ithaca, DeBarla Mayo at Rochester, and then myself at Hobart. So uh, it was just a, a good era of elite point guard play. But I say uh, DeBarla Mayo is one of the best players I played against. What was one unexpected challenge you are not expecting from being a first year head coach? Ooh, this is a tough one. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would I would say losing a player to injury for the season. Um, Jack Lejeur, who's you know one of our best leaders, one of our best teammates, got injured, I want to say, five games into the year. So kind of trying to adjust to not having him was a, a huge challenge. And that's yeah. not one of those things you anticipate as a coach that we're going right. to a guy for the year. So as a first-year head coach, that was uh, definitely really hard to deal with. So last question, Coach. I'm someone who is graduating supposedly this spring. It's unclear if I'll have a graduation. but <laughs> And moving into a, you know the workforce where I'm going to need to wear sport coats. And the sports coats you wore on the bench during the tournament were just incredible. Where did you find them? <laughs> uh, thank you first, man. Um, so there's a tailor uh, I go to in Pittsburgh, New York. The guy's name's Val. Uh, he does an awesome job. And you know, he calls me when he gets some new coats or suits that I might like. Uh, he's very stylish himself. And he that's has a awesome. good uh, eye for kind of sport coats. So you know, Pittsburgh, New York, man, that's where you want to go and, and hit up your guy Val. I can put you in contact if, if you need some help with that. <laughs> Shout out to Val. I love it. <laughs> All right, Coach, thank, thanks so much for taking the time to, to join me today. Uh, do, do you have any uh, last words for the great people of uh, Geneva, New York? First, thank you, Dave, and you know, best of luck to you as you go on your journey here, man, to see what you've been able to establish with this podcast and the foundation you've laid, the habits you've been able to instill, man. You're going to go on and do great things, so you know, keep transferring these skills that you're learning now to whatever field you, you do later in life. 
Um, but to everyone in Hobart, William Smith, and Geneva, you know, hopefully we remain healthy during these crazy times here. Uh, we all will get through it. Um, but the exciting part that I'm looking forward to is how sports can continue to, you know, rally people and communities. So uh, once things clear up to Geneva, everyone, please come out and support all our athletics at, at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. That'll do it for today's episode of the Double Double. I hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation with Coach Thompson as much as I did. Uh, If you enjoyed the podcast today, you can find us on iTunes and Spotify, and I encourage you to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. So uh, we'll be back next week uh, with a couple other coaches who I think will be uh, really interesting as well. So uh, everyone have a great weekend. Take care and make it a great day.